Good evening. It's a delight to preach to you tonight from Psalm 16. I love this church, and I'm so happy that we can be here together and seek comfort from God's Word. So please open your Bibles to Psalm 16 and follow along while, while I read. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this beautiful song. And we thank you that it is the words of your very Holy Spirit spoken through your Saint David uh, for our good and to remind us of wonderful things. I pray, Lord, we would be encouraged through it tonight. In Jesus, amen. It is a time of crisis in the life of David in this psalm, which he wrote. We see that there in the first verse where he calls out for safety, for refuge. Preserve me, O God, he says. He's insecure. There's some kind of threat to his safety and even his soul. And that distress, that tension of the threat of abandonment or of corruption in death sets the viewpoint through all of the verses that come after. We don't know what the circumstances were that led him to write this poem. We know from the Samuel books and from 1 Kings, though, that Uh, David, who sat on the throne of Israel at about 1,000 B.C., was often in a time of crisis, sometimes for his own sin, like us, sometimes on account of the sin of others, like us. He was also a man, you could say, of sorrows and acquainted with grief, like us. But also, he is like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you see, the blood of Christ courses through this psalm. It's actually known for that. It's known as a messianic psalm. And we will see more of that as we work through it. But what I want you to see right now up front is that while this is a psalm of David, and this is a psalm about the Messiah, this is also a psalm about you. Yes, it is a story, a picture of you, brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, the experiences of David in this psalm, expressed by him, and the truths about Jesus prophesied 
here are the proof and the power behind what I argue is the main point of this psalm, which is for you. The main message is for you. So what is that main message? Well, here's the main message. Here's what I think this psalm is trying to instruct us in. For the believer in Christ, you and me, God secures our bodies and our souls and makes us happy today and tomorrow and forever. Let me say that again. For the believer in Christ, you and me, God secures our bodies and our souls and makes us happy today and tomorrow and forever. That, I think, is the main point of this psalm, the message of this psalm. And to back that up, to make that point, I think there are three things which will be our points for this evening that prove it. Three things that we're being told. First, there are the things in the psalm that we have. The things that we have. Second, there are the things that we don't have. And third, there are the things that we will have. Those are our three points. The things we have, the things we don't have, and the things that we will have. So let's begin with our first point then as we work through the text. The things that we have. Look there in verse 2 of the psalm. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Now pause. Consider that statement for a moment. I have no good apart from you. I want that verse to sink in. I have no good apart from you, Lord. Sometimes, in a way that God's Holy Spirit can only do, the entire Bible gets summed up in just one tiny, vast thought. We could meditate on this verse for a lifetime. And I hope that you do, but on your own time. For our purposes tonight, I want to use this verse, as I think it is intended here in this psalm, as a kind of key, a kind of unlocking verse for understanding the contents of the psalm. Because I have no good apart from you is really a perfectly succinct way of summing up this whole psalm. So let's spend some time exploring that phrase, that idea, as David leads us through the psalm. So what good, then, does David say specifically that God has provided to him now? What does he have? What good has God provided for him? And I think there are three things that we'll look at that that he's got. First, look at verses 5 and 6, where we see David's inheritance. David has an inheritance. Verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So David uses a a few metaphors to describe what we have gained by knowing the Lord, by having the Lord. He says the Lord is all that he needs. He is my portion and my cup, my food and my drink, my meat and my wine, my sustenance. The Lord is all of that for David. It's not the king's table nor his great riches that give him life, but it is the Lord 
who is his portion and his cup. David lives by the Lord. He has no good apart from him. And more than living by the Lord, the Lord has given him a place to live. David has received an inheritance in God. David has a lot. Now, not a lot, as if he had a lot of things, although he was a king, but a lot much more like a parking lot, like, except they had no cars, so David's lot was a lot like a plot, except not like a novel, more like a plot of land. So David's lot is a plot, okay? A country, a territory assigned to him. He has boundary lines to this lot, and the Lord holds it. David does not secure his borders. His army does not secure his borders. It is the Lord who holds this lot for David. There is an inside and an outside to his lot. And the lines of that lot have fallen in pleasant places. These are boundary lines. They are the borders, the the stone markers that set out the property limits of a piece of land. And within these borders, within these lines for David, there is a beautiful inheritance, a beautiful possession. This full portion, this cup of wine, this pasture line, pasture land, the, the lines that separate what is David's and what is not, these are the lines of God's good and beautiful inheritance for David because God is David's God. But although David was a king with a kingdom and a territory, his inheritance in the Lord was not primarily material. Because David, when he speaks of his inheritance this way, is actually drawing his language from a verse in the book of Numbers, chapter 18, where God is establishing and organizing the priests on the order of Aaron. And God says to Aaron in verse 20, this is Numbers 18, verse 20, you shall have no inheritance in their land, the other Israelites, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion, and your inheritance among the people of Israel. The blessings and honors and privileges of the priests of God are essentially not material, not like those other tribes who received allotments of land. What the priests had as a class and what David is claiming for himself here in this psalm is a closeness to God, a special relationship with him, a privilege of communicating with him, with him and about him. Now, David was not a Levite, so he does not have a direct inheritance in what the Levites receive in the book of Numbers. But he is a prophet. Peter calls him a prophet in the New Testament. David understood that he and all believers have a priceless inheritance in Christ. We of faith are the priests of God who represent him and mediate his glory and the goodness to the world. What a privileged position. David understands this, and he wants us to understand that too. We have God as our special relationship. That should be a satisfying lot in life. So David has no good apart from the Lord. And David has the Lord, so all is good. And so it is or should be with us. But that's one thing, an inheritance David has. There is a second thing David has, and he has it now. It is the good providence of God. The Lord is the Lord of all providence. He's the Lord of provision 
and the Lord of action, what David has and what we have in the details of our lives, including their limits, is all from the Lord. The good things you have all are from the Lord. The good wife or the good husband or the good job or even the good weather or good grades or good thoughts or good batting skills or good money, good parents, good health, especially good works. All of these things are from God. Good things, good providences, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places for us. But even what Christians sometimes call the hard providences, those things that we call, that the, 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 those things that crowd out what we call good, these too are pleasantly falling boundary lines in the Lord's providence. The boundary lines are just right even if they exclude what we would call is good. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, perhaps this is David's son writing in verse 14, it observes, when times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. David knew this. The lines, however, have still fallen for him, even in a time of crisis in pleasant places because his inheritance was in the Lord. So I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, do you have this kind of contentment? When you add up your life, do you still find it wanting? Something you are missing, something that is not enough? Do you have David's restricting sense of fullness from God, of the good and beautiful boundary lines that God has set? Or do you need something more, something a little different, something a little better? Do you need your afflictions removed in order to be happy? But for David, his providence, God's providence, and and God's decisions in his life are set up just the way they need to be for his good and for his glory. And this, too, should be our attitude before the Lord, Whatever the Lord ordains is right, and those things should be sufficient for us. As our inheritance in this life, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. So God gives good providences to David and to us, um, and we have no good apart from the Lord. But there is a third thing that David dwells on that he receives from the Lord, which we also have which is better even than good providences and is deeper and longer lasting than the providential details of our life. What makes this blessing categorically better is that uh, this possession we cannot lose. It is eternal life in body and in soul. A comedian once quipped, the problem with beauty is that it's like being born rich and slowly getting poorer, because beauty fades, and good providences in this broken world have an end. They fade away. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. For example, David was a mighty man of valor, a warrior, a king in his splendor, but the Bible gives us a picture of him also 
in his last days, and it is not comforting. The first verse of 1 Kings says, Now King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not even get warm. David, who wrote this psalm confidently, eventually grew feeble and bedridden, unable to even warm himself as the vitality slowly drained from him. David would fade away. And as for his great legacy, he had a kingdom. It was glorious. It was rich. It was small yet powerful. He started a dynasty. But just as David faded away and died, so too this kingdom would slowly degrade and split and eventually fold under the weight of its own sin, its boundary lines overrun by a wrathful empire. Even that great blessing ended in spectacular judgment. And like David, we too are slowly losing everything. We have all been born now to die. It is the inescapable conclusion of our lives. But David in this psalm is undeterred by the fading course of his own life, by its seeming futility and meaninglessness. He makes an impossibly bold contradiction of the darkness of life there in verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So here is a problem, a contradiction. David died. His body was buried and his flesh was corrupted. He decayed. His soul descended to Sheol, to what Spurgeon called the land of disembodied spirits. How on earth could David write then that his flesh dwells secure today, that he, the Holy One, the Anointed One, would not see corruption. And to understand how David finds that comfort, even in the face of his own death, we need to jump forward to the New Testament, where the psalm is quoted twice in the book of Acts. You can turn there to Acts chapter 13. 13. The psalm is quoted by, by Peter in Acts chapter 2, and then also Paul in Acts chapter 13. We'll look at Paul's use But in each case, they are preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. Peter and Paul make very similar points uh, in quoting this psalm. Each explains that the mystery of, of this psalm, the tension behind the promises of present life without death on the one hand, and the reality of an impending death on the other, was revealed in the resurrection of Jesus. And the point they both zero in on is verse 10. Of Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So we'll look now at how Paul takes this up in Acts 13. Uh, he's preaching in a, in a synagogue in a city in, in central Turkey. Paul's giving proofs from the Old Testament of the fact of Jesus' resurrection. And he quotes from verse 10 of our psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. And then he explains in verse 36 of, of Acts 13, chapter 13, he explains what's going on in our psalm. He says, For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Paul here makes the point that while David could not rest in the full security of eternal life yet, because it did not come to him, Directly, not then, 
not in the present. Because David's hope of a body that would not decay, of a soul that would not suffer, rested in the one to come, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus was put to death by Pilate and the Jewish leaders, but Jesus did not see corruption. Jesus' visit to Sheol was a short one. He was not abandoned there. In three days, it was actually 36 hours about, God raised him up. He rose from the dead, body and soul, reunited in one. And the body that Jesus took up in resurrection was his old body, but his old body made new and in every way eternal, no longer subject to the gravity of death. But Paul brings out another element that lurks just under the surface of Psalm 16, that David needed forgiveness of sins. So Acts 13, verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, this resurrected eternal man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So putting this truth back into Psalm 16, David's hope of a body that will not decay and of a soul that will not be severed and abandoned was rooted in the death and resurrection of the eternal Son of God, which brings forgiveness of sins. But what does any of this have to do with forgiveness of sins? Psalm 16 doesn't mention it. Well, not really. But David understood, and the Bible has made perfectly clear from the beginning, even from the Garden of Eden, that sin earns death. So if David is dying, David is sinning. And if we are dying, we are sinning. We are sinners. And that has been the message of the Bible from the very beginning. But so too with Jesus. If he is dying, as he died, it is because he has sinned. But in his case, the sin was not his own. It was the sin of you and me who believe. So let's add up the implications of that. Our bodies are all descending into the grave as I speak, and they are descending because of our sin. There, in death, our breach of God's law, the law of Moses, the law of creation, would condemn us to an eternity in hell, and we ourselves cannot recover from it. But there was one who died, who bore sin, who bore the pain of hell for others' sins as he expired. And he, the eternal Son of God, has exhausted the eternal wrath of God on that sin. It was finished. So to give it proof and to give us hope, he rose from the grave, never again to see corruption. May our hearts be glad and our whole beings rejoice, as David's did, at this wonderful fact. Because he saw no corruption, our sins are forgiven. Yet, while all of this is true for us now, that we have a promise of eternal life and even of a new body, we do not now have a full resolution of all of these things. David remains in crisis. That's why he penned this psalm. David says his flesh is secure but he goes on to sleep and decay and death, as we've seen. There's a strong sense of having something now and yet not fully having it. When Peter quotes Psalm 16 in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, there he refers to David as a prophet, as I mentioned earlier. 
because David looked forward to the fulfillment of this psalm in Christ. But David also takes on some of the style of the prophets in this psalm, where events near and far and very far are collapsed into just two dimensions, up close. Prophetic writings sometimes lack what we could call depth perception, because the complete reality of things they speak of in the present is sometimes not fully realized for centuries or millennia or all the way until the end of time. And the prophets are intentionally flattening the future for us as they do because they are encouraging us to act now in light of the things that will happen then as if they have already happened here and now because of the coming of those things is so certain in the sovereignty of God. So what we have in the Lord is now the, the, the lack of corruption, the eternal life, the non-abandonment to Sheol. We have that promise now. It is realized for us in part now, but it is also not quite yet. We still sin. We still die. We still sleep in death. But the things are sure just like the prophets would promise to us. We can truly say, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. But that's not all. This psalm is clear that there are some things we who believe have, as we've just seen, but also some things that we do not have. So this is our second point. That was our first and longest point. Now the things that we do not have. Look at verse 4 of Psalm chapter 16. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now here is a contrast. Remember in verse 2, David declared, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Well, verse 4 is the portrait of those who do not have the Lord, who do not call out for refuge from him. And what they do have, what they do do, is go after another God. And what they have is something that we who believe do not, a multiplication of sorrows. Now the phrase, the multiplication of sorrows, is actually quite famous in the Bible. It comes from Genesis, chapter 3, verse 16. God is speaking and he says to the woman, I will surely multiply your pain, multiply your sorrows in childbearing. This is the curse of God on Eve for her sin in the garden. Her pain would be multiplied because she, with her husband, ran after another God, as have we. Look back at the horror of the picture in verse 4 of Psalm 16. You have men and women running, straining after another God. They seek to uh, please him, to get security and life from him by pouring out offerings of blood and ritually calling out his name. Yet their sorrows only multiply. And David does not want that. He separates himself from that sorrowful path. He turns from it. He refuses to join in their sacrifices. He won't even say the name of their false gods. Now, there is a clear place and time where Blood offerings and incantations were uh, kind of the the worldly norm. That was true of the nations surrounding Israel in David's day, and even of some of the people in Israel during his reign. 
But that is also true today in a spiritual sense, even here in New York City. In our Babylon, the sorrows of those who run after other gods only multiply. And we can see this clearly if we can identify those false gods around us and in our own hearts. So think of these. There is, for instance, a money industry in our town. And those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Their sorrows multiply. There is in this town a sex industry that promises salvation through pleasure now and even through self-expression. There's also an alcohol and a drug industry that promises a very brief heaven on earth, even in your own head. And those are just the classic vices, those, those ancient gods and their libations. But how about these? There is a healthcare industry that promises life through medicine. Uh, there's a political machine of both parties, parties that promises salvation through politics. There's an education industry that gives you security through knowledge and skills and degrees and accomplishments. And even a, a leisure industry, the laziest of gods, Uh, who gives the promise of happiness through restaurants and shows and vacations. If only I had that, then I would dwell secure. Then I would be happy. But this is a warning for all of us. For you here who do not know Christ, you are caught in these terrible machines, these industries of false hope. Don't you see that the end will be far worse than the beginning? Many of these things are not intrinsically bad, but when you run after them, when you put your hope in them, when you love them and call out to them, their names are on your lips, your sorrows will multiply and increase as each of those gods falls short in the promises that he gives you. So come to Christ instead. Repent like David. Make Christ's story of life and death and eternal resurrection your own. And trust in him. But believers, and I think most of us here are believers, these false gods call out to you too. Do not be deceived by them. David needed to steel himself against them, which is why he wrote this psalm. And as Paul warned the Galatian church in 519, we can easily, uh, uh, we can easily deceive ourselves. Galatians 5 verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So, brothers and sisters, beware, lest you find that you never actually had a share in the inheritance. Beware lest you find that your life is merely chasing after some other God. But we who truly believe, who have separated ourselves by repentance from these false gods, who have turned against them in spiritual warfare and put our faith in the only God of good things, we are spared. We lack the multiplied sorrows of these men. And we can rejoice in that. So this brings us to our third point, what we've seen. We've seen already what we have. We've seen what we do not have. And now let's look at the things that we 
will have. Here we look through the prophetic lens of the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises. Uh, Before, we saw uh, the the meaning of David's words in his day, and then we saw the fulfillment of his prophecies in Christ's day, in Christ, the, the first man who did not see corruption. And now we look even farther ahead, ahead even of our own present day, to the glorious future that we have secured in Christ. So read with me in verse 11 in light of that. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I've gotten to, uh, to attend uh, all six or so uh, weddings of our church members in this past year. And what a privilege it's been to see my brothers and sisters make lifelong promises uh, to each other. I think... Uh, the most moving moments of each of those ceremonies, and we set things up this way, is the great expectation, the building excitement, the joyful tension just before the bride appears to her groom at the end of the way. Everything builds to that moment. We've got the groom and then his groomsmen one by one appearing and the bridesmaids one by one appearing the flower girls and the ring bearer and the music crescendos and everyone stands, all of this puts a rush in our hearts just before the bride appears to meet her groom. This is verse 11 in that moment. The moment on the cusp of all the joy and pleasure and glory becoming fully real and fully present. David is anticipating all of this great future joy and pleasure and fulfillment and consummation, mind, body, and soul will be enraptured in the presence of the Lord. Harry spoke of it this morning in looking forward as we take the Lord's Supper, how our small little feast that we enjoy together in that meal is a picture, is a a reminder, is just a, a, a taste of what is about to come in the fullness of the feast of fat things on that day. Well, so too with the weddings, so too with verse 11 of Psalm 16. All those things are demonstrating to us that we are just on the cusp. We are almost there in that fullness of joy. Verse 11 says, we are on the path of life, which leads to this great destination. We are on that path now in hope and expectation. And there is a destination. The destination is resurrection life the full consummation of God's providence, when we will have new bodies that do not wear out and blood-washed souls that do not sin and hearts that brim over with the love of God. There we will find ourselves in the presence of God, a place of joy fuller than any of us has ever experienced. There is a land of pleasures forevermore. There death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. Our sorrows do not multiply there. They instead vanish. The anticipation of that great day is enough to make David happy. He rejoiced in his day because he knew he would rejoice in that day. It should be no different for us. We and David will have the same joy together in the presence of the Lord, our Lord, physically in his presence, 
where we can see him and touch him and feel his embrace. Do you look forward to that day? Do you expect that we are just on the cusp of it? God says we surely are. So that is what we will have. So what then are the things that we must do in light of these truths? I think there are two things in this psalm, two kind of applications that David draws out for us. And the first is, take delight in your church. Read with me in verse 3, Psalm 16. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. These saints, these holy ones, men and women, are his brothers and his sisters, those who have found their refuge in the Lord, those who have recognized that apart from God, they have no good thing. So I want you to focus on this and and check your hearts on this. How often, how easily have you looked looked admiringly at the world and its people and see the excellence of them? Or worse still, how often or how easily have you looked down on God's people? Both of those are sure ways to lose hope. So David makes it so clear that the purpose of the people of God is to bring you delight. We are to each other another of God's graces to us. And we, as we wait for the consummation of all of the promises to complete. And this because we are the excellent ones the extraordinary ones in God's kingdom. And what makes us excellent is that precious grace of Jesus in each of us. If we do not recognize that grace in each other, we will begin, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, to measure ourselves by ourselves and compare ourselves with ourselves, which is not wise. But when we see each other as David describes his friends, as those who are saints in the land, recipients of God's grace, excellent ones, we will see each other as we really are and take delight. So, brothers and sisters, if you see your brother and sister across the way, even here in this room, think she is an excellent one. He is an excellent one. They are aristocrats in this earth. And why? Because God has given them the precious jewels of the kingdom, the inheritance. God has given them a beautiful inheritance, a crown of life, their name written in the eternal book of life. He's called them his own and taken the marks of their sin in his flesh. They will live forevermore. See your brother and sister for who he is and who she is. Take your delight in the saints because of what God has done in them. Delight in your church. Second application is to set the Lord always before you. Look there in verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Here's where David gives us the practical example of his meditations. David puts his mind and his heart to action. He blesses the Lord. He speaks of him. He praises him. He learns about him. And he receives the counsel of the Lord. In verse 7, when you meditate on the Lord, on his word, you will be counseled by him. But look at verse 8. Do you see that curious phrase? 
In the night also my heart instructs me. And in your translation, you may have a footnote that what we call heart is literally their kidneys in Hebrew. So even in the night, his kidneys instruct him. I don't know about you, but I cannot say that at at night I've received any instruction from my kidneys. But this is poetry, and this is Hebrew poetry, and these are expressions in a less head-focused age for the will. The Hebrews place the will of man in his gut. So David says he sets his will, his determination towards the Lord to remind himself of the knowledge of what he has and what he does not have and what he will have. The process for David is so automatic that even at night, consciously or unconsciously, he teaches himself rather than listens to himself. We do not practice a passive religion. So on the contrary, God gives us our strength and our mind and our hearts to pursue him because he first pursued us. So while we live in a world of shaken men, when we remember that he is with us and he is for us and he is at our right hand and we have these promises sure now and forever, neither will we be shaken. Set the Lord always before you. Determine to do that. So remember, what you have and what you do not have and what you will have in the Lord is in the Lord. So say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is uh, unfathomable to us. Uh, because it stretches from, from eternity past to eternity future, and it has caught us up in its wonderful promises. Lord, we pray that we would be uh, as, as overjoyed, even in the, in the face of crisis or death, as David was, uh, because he knew all about you, and he set his mind to you, and he saw delight in the saints that you have, you have touched with your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.